All right, well, good morning again. And yeah, it is really good to have so many of you back to kind of feel a little bit whole again. We know some of you guys are still at home, and that's awesome. But uh, it's nice to have uh, kind of most of our congregation here. Uh, before I get into the, me the message this morning, I did just really want to quickly say, uh, quickly remind you all to be praying for Pastor Eric. We are about halfway through his sabbatical, and uh, I got a chance to catch up with him uh, last week. He said that he really uh, misses me. Uh, I didn't say anything about you guys. <laughs> just kidding. He misses you guys. He misses being here. Uh, but, you know, it, I think so far it's been a really good time of rest for him. Uh, I remember from my sabbatical, it's just you don't realize how tired, how stressed you are until you step away from things, and it takes some time to decompress and recover. And so I think really just continue to be praying for that, that Pastor Eric gets rest and restoration and renewal. But also as we enter into this kind of second half of his sabbatical, that God will really be speaking and moving and giving insight into life and faith and ministry and family. And uh, I know we're all excited uh, for what God is doing and, and to hear about what his sabbatical is like. And so uh, thanks for praying for him so far, but keep praying uh, as we move forward. Well, anyway, we are continuing our brand new series this morning, uh, Jesus the King. Uh, this series is based on a book by Pastor Tim Keller, and it takes us through the Gospel of Mark, the life and ministry, and death and resurrection of Jesus. And last week, Pastor Donna introduced our series with a message on this radical call to discipleship, to live in light of the good news of the kingdom. And one thing that I think we really have to keep in front of us throughout this entire series that we really want to keep our hearts and our minds on is just this simple idea that it is good news. It's genuinely good, exciting, awesome news that Jesus is king, that the kingdom has come, that we get to participate in this kingdom mission. At the heart of this series is an invitation to believe that it is really the best thing possible, that Jesus wants to be king over your life. And I hope every week we get more and more fired up about this idea, about Jesus reigning over each one of us, over our lives, over our families, over our work, over our church. And so this is something that we see in our passage today as we continue on, that Jesus is really beginning to challenge his followers to see just how good he is. And last week we looked at Mark 1, uh, the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He begins to preach and teach and announce that the kingdom of God has arrived. But then he goes out and, and not only does he talk about the kingdom, not only does he talk about this good news, but he begins to show it, he begins to demonstrate it. He goes out and he heals the sick. He casts out demons. And so what we see already in the first chapter of Mark is that people are drawn in. People are beginning to hear about this Jesus, to understand that there's something special about him. And so crowds begin to flock to him wherever he goes. And in our passage this morning, we're going to see Jesus make one of, I think, the signature points of his ministry. He says, hey, I am even better than you think, than you know. So let's go ahead and jump into our passage for today. Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark 2. And we're going to read this amazing passage of healing. 
Mark 2, verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get to him, get to him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. Let's stop there for a little bit. Now Mark does an amazing job setting the stage for this encounter. And the details here are really important because it helps us understand what's going on. And he tells us that the scene at this house is absolute chaos. The crowds have come, this massive group has gathered, and the house is completely full. If you can remember what this felt like in the pre-COVID world, you know, people are pressed up against each other, squeezed in, jockeying for a position. You can imagine that some people are probably uh, just listening, trying to understand Jesus' preaching and teaching. But there are probably some who are trying to make their way through this massive crowd to get close to Jesus, maybe even to be able to reach out and touch him. So the house is really just overflowing with people and energy. Mark says that you couldn't even really stand outside the door to get a glimpse of Jesus. That's how crazy this scene was. And so in the midst of all this, a paralyzed man and his friends enter the story. And we don't know a whole lot about this man, uh, about his life and where he comes from, but really all we know is that he has a serious condition. He's paralyzed. His condition is serious enough that he has to be carried on a stretcher by his four friends. And so they come to this house, they come to see Jesus, but there's this huge crowd, and so in the face of this obstacle, they come up with this crazy plan. And if you've heard this story before in messages or in Sunday school, don't lose sight of the fact of how weird, how crazy it is that they do this. They go up on the roof, and they start to dig a hole in the roof. Now, keep in mind, this is not like a modern roof. A first century roof was probably made out of some combination of like mud and twigs and reeds. So digging through it, making a hole in it, wouldn't have been so difficult. But it's still crazy because they have to make like an entire person-sized hole for this stretcher to fit through. I assume that at some point, the people inside begin to realize that this is happening. You think about this, like Jesus is teaching, and all of a sudden, like this dirt and mud and stick starts to fall on top of people, and they look up, and there's people digging a hole in the roof. There's probably an awkward moment where everybody just stops and watches. If you think it's awkward in service when somebody's cell phone goes off, imagine someone starts digging a hole in the roof and we all stop and wait for them to finish. You don't have to be a first century Jew to understand that this is a serious, reckless act of desire and desperation. Uh, last week, our family got a chance to go down to San Diego for just a couple nights, a quick getaway. And on Friday evening, we went out for just a nice night out as a family. We went to a fun dinner, we did some shopping at the Lego store, and then we were going to end the night in the most perfect way possible. The best way to end any night is to go get some ice cream. And so there was a Cold Stones uh, by our hotel, and so uh, the kids had never had Cold Stones before, so they were excited. I was excited. I was just really in the mood for some ice cream. And so we pull up to the Cold Stones, 
at exactly 7.45 p.m. And it was closed. Now, Yelp said it closed at 8 o'clock. The signs on the door said it closed at 8 o'clock. The lights were on. The people around the Coldstones were sitting there eating their freshly scooped ice cream, but the doors were locked. So I peek my head in, and I see in there there's a worker standing behind the little counter. We lock eyes. And so I tell him with my eyes, as clearly as I can, hey, listen, bro, help me out here. We both know you closed the store early. That's OK. I understand. But I've got kids out here. Just be cool. So you know, we communicate with each other. He looks right back at me. And then he turns around and walks to the back of the store. <laughs> so we did not get ice cream. Now, I was disappointed. I was a little bit irritated with my psychic friend there. But at no point in this encounter did I ever think about trying to break into the cold stones. Like I wasn't going to climb onto the roof and look for a secret entranceway. I didn't throw a chair through the window and go get some ice cream. And of course not, right? You would never expect I would do that because it's just ice cream. I didn't want it that bad. It sounded good, but if we really wanted to, we could have gone to any number of ice cream places that would have been just as good or better. And so what Mark is showing us here in this passage is that this man desperately wanted to see Jesus. He knew that Jesus was something special. He wasn't just any old teacher, any old religious leader. He was somebody who could change his life. Getting into his presence, it meant something. He had heard the stories. This guy was healing the sick, casting out demons. And so what we see here, what Mark is showing us, is that on some level there was some very basic but genuine form of faith, belief in who Jesus was. He thinks that Jesus is good. Jesus is powerful on some level. And Jesus recognizes this. In, Mark 5, uh, or in verse 5, Mark tells us that Jesus saw their faith. So Jesus sees this whole encounter. He sees this guy digging a hole in the roof, or these friends digging a hole in the roof. And keep in mind, this is, there's a good chance this is Jesus' house. It might be Peter's house. It might be Mark's house. It's probably somebody in their group. This guy's digging a hole in their roof. And Jesus isn't irritated by this. Jesus isn't put off by the fact that he was interrupted in the middle of his sermon. Instead, he sees desire and belief. There's a sense you can kind of feel some love and compassion for this man. And so given that, what you would expect to see next is a simple healing story. Jesus touching the man's legs, maybe spitting on his hands and rubbing his back. Man being healed. His needs being met right then and there, being restored. But this isn't Jesus' response at all. He's got a different agenda. Verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, He said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. That's that's great, but it's a little bit strange when you think about the context, when you think about what's happened so far, when you think about what this paralyzed man is looking for. I mean, imagine you're him. You go to all this work to come see Jesus. Your friends, they go home on the roof. You get lowered down. You're here at the feet of Jesus. And instead of healing, he talks about sin and forgiveness. Now, obviously, it's not a bad thing to get, but it's not what he's looking for. 
But what we have to realize is that Jesus isn't being uncaring or insensitive. It's not that he's unaware of or disinterested in this man's needs and desires. Instead, Jesus is doing something really important. He's showing this man that his needs are deeper than he realizes. He wants to show him that Jesus has something better for him than he could ever think to ask for. See, this paralytic understandably believes that his biggest problem is his physical condition. And thus he believes that what he really needs, the most important thing he could ask for from Jesus, this amazing teacher and healer and man of power and goodness, the most important thing he could ask for is physical healing. But Jesus is revealing that there's a bigger problem, even bigger than physical disability, complete paralysis. His real problem is spiritual, and what he really needs goes deeper than physical healing. Here's what uh, Pastor Keller says about this account in his book. Jesus is confronting the paralytic with his main problem by driving him deep. Jesus is saying, by coming to me and asking for only your body to be healed, you're not going deep enough. You have underestimated the the depths of your longings, the longings of your heart. Everyone who's paralyzed wants with every fiber of their being to to be healed, to walk, but surely this man would have been resting all of his hopes in the possibility of walking again. In his heart, he's almost surely saying, if only I could walk again, then I would be set for life. I'd never be unhappy. I would never complain. If only I could walk, then everything would be right. And Jesus is saying, my son, you're mistaken. Now, let's be clear. Jesus isn't saying that the paralyzed man is wrong for wanting to be healed. He's not saying that this is a bad desire or a sinful thought. What he's saying is that he hasn't gone far enough. He hasn't correctly identified his true problem, his deepest need, what's really going to make him whole. So this isn't a rebuke on Jesus' part. Instead, it's an act of love. It's an invitation to see that there's more. And if we want to live with Jesus as king, if we want to follow him, this is something that we really have to wrestle with. That so often we too have underestimated the depths of our longings. I mean, let's be honest. How many times have we thought something along the lines of, if I just had this, then I would be set for life. God, if you just gave me this, then I wouldn't complain, I wouldn't be unhappy. That's all I want. God, if I could just do this one thing, then everything would be right. Everything would be okay. Now, we might not say those exact words, but I think so often they reflect the the longings and the desires of our hearts. Today, when you turn on your TV to watch the Super Bowl, you're going to see some really expensive commercials and really good commercials. But these commercials, so many of them prey on these very longings. They weaponize 
the, uh, the fact that these longings exist in every single one of us. Like, if you just had this pickup truck, then you'd be the tough, manly man you always wanted to be. If you just took this prescription drug, then you'd be happy and carefree. You'd swing on swings and go for long, watches, long walks on the beach. If you just used this shampoo, your hair would be lustrous and voluminous. It'd be so glamorous and beautiful. If you just drank a Pepsi, all the world's problems would go away. We'd sing and dance in the streets together. Oh, we can laugh at commercials like these. They are, they, are, they are kind of silly, but they exist because our longings are fallen. They exist because on some level, we know that these beliefs are real. In some sense, we believe that there's something out there that will make our lives good, that will make us feel manly or beautiful or happy or secure or content. Whether it's a certain job, a certain possession, a certain relationship, a certain salary, this is what will save me from my loneliness. This is what I need to deal with my sense of unworthiness, from my boredom, from my disappointment. And again, there's nothing inherently wrong with wanting things. There's nothing wrong with having dreams or desires. Nothing wrong with buying fancy shampoo or driving a truck. But one of the most basic messages of the Bible is that these desires, they always have a way of becoming more than just desires. They have a way of becoming saviors, kings. They become the way we define what's good. And they ultimately diminish or replace our desire for what's really good, for what we actually need. And so Jesus doesn't just say, hey, those desires are bad, stop it. He wants us to see how futile they are in relationship to what we really need. He wants us to see that these things don't lead to more healing, they lead to brokenness. Let me read the rest of that paragraph from Keller's book. Jesus is saying, my son, you're mistaken. That may sound harsh, but it's profoundly true. Jesus says, when I heal your body, if that's all I do, you'll feel you'll never be unhappy again. But wait. Wait two months, four months. The euphoria won't last. The roots of the discontent of the human heart go deep. Uh, I've shared before uh, many times how much I enjoy uh, going mountain biking. But the thing that I love almost as much as riding bikes is buying bikes. Uh, throughout the pandemic, I was fortunate enough to get a pretty good feel for the used bike market. And so I was able to buy and sell bikes and upgrade my way to nicer and nicer bikes without spending a whole lot of money. And so from early 2020 until now, about two years, I've had six different bikes. Don't judge me. <laughs> and with each bike has come different, very tangible improvements. Right? So better suspension so that the ride isn't as bumpy, a better drivetrain that makes pedaling more efficient, better brakes so I can stop better and fall less, and better frame material, better tires, and on and on and on and on. And there was always a part of me, especially early on in the process, 
that thought to myself that always looked at the next bike and said, if I have that bike, once I get a bike like that, then I'll be good. Then I'll become the rider I want to be. I'll be able to ride my bike like those guys with the nice bikes. I'll have better equipment to handle these trails. Suspension will make it so I, I'm not as afraid to ride that big drop, or I'll be able to make that really steep climb, or I'll look cool and I'll, I'll feel good. If I just have this next upgrade, then I'll be good. Well, I'm at the point now where I have a pretty nice bike. It's not top, top of the line, but it's really everything I was hoping for. And you know what I've honestly realized now that I have this bike? I'm not saying this with a hint of false humility. Is I've realized that I'm just not that good at mountain biking. Like, I'm fine, I'm okay, but I'm not great at it. And no amount of equipment is ever going to change that. And what's happened is that the better bike I've gotten, the more I've had to deal with my own inability. I've had to face my own shortcomings. So now I can't blame my bike for the trails I can't ride. Can't blame my bike for the hills I can't climb. I can't blame my bike for the fact that I don't look all that cool when I'm riding. It's all on me. And Keller mentions an article from years ago about how miserable many famous actors and actresses are. And in this article, a woman named Cynthia Heimel talks about just this whole process of making it. How actors and actresses, they spend all this time and energy, they spend their whole lives wanting that big break, wanting fame and fortune, success. And they make endless sacrifices, they suffer and struggle through dead-end jobs, endless auditions. Their relationships, their families suffer because of it. But then when they finally make it, when they finally reach the summit, she points out that they're often even unhappier than they were to start off with. Because they realize that all this stuff that was supposed to make them happy, that was supposed to make them feel good, that was supposed to make everything all right, ultimately hasn't changed anything. The roots of the discontent of the human heart go deep. And this all reminds me of one of my favorite stories from the Gospels, the story of the rich young ruler. And I think if you think about it, in a way, this story is kind of the flip side of our passage this morning. Because you've got a young man, but he's very different from the paralyzed man. This man is rich and young. He's got all kinds of power and authority, fancy possessions. Probably a good-looking guy. He can buy nice clothes and take care of himself. He says that he keeps all the commandments. He's, he's good. He keeps the law, does what he's supposed to do. This guy is what every first-century Jew would want to be. But he comes to Jesus, and he's looking for more. He asks him, Jesus, how can I inherit eternal life. And he's not simply asking Jesus, how do I go to heaven? What he's asking for is the kingdom. He's asking for a life of value and significance and satisfaction. And what's implied is this simple truth. That something is missing. He has everything he wanted, but he comes to Jesus really in the exact same state as the paralyzed man, he's still in need of healing, still in need 
of having those longings satisfied. One of the most challenging but profoundly true messages of the Bible is that we are really bad at identifying what's important, at seeing what we need. And so we're prone to chasing after things that will leave us feeling frustrated and disillusioned. We either don't get what we want and we feel frustrated and upset and bitter, or we get what we want. And God tells us we're going to be disappointed, let down, disillusioned, empty. And this really is the nature of sin. Sin isn't just a mistake we make or a rule that we break. Sin is the inability to order our lives properly, to live according to what God says is good and true. Ultimately, sin is a rejection of the idea that God is what we need and God's reign is what's best for our lives. And sin leads us to look for happiness and peace and satisfaction and joy in all the wrong places. And so eventually, we're left with this kind of wild discontentment and deep, deep disappointment. And so in light of all of this, Jesus' response to the paralytic makes perfect sense. We can see where there's so much love and grace and compassion and goodness and what he offers. Because he knows that this man needs to go deeper. He needs to go to the root issue beyond his physical brokenness. He needs to deal with sin. Jesus wants this man to see that sin is at the heart of all of his problems. In some ways, sin is responsible for his physical condition. Now, that doesn't mean that he sinned at some point and therefore he was paralyzed, but it means that sin is the reason for all disease, all sickness. Sin is, in some sense, the cause, the root of his body's brokenness. But more than that, sin is the reason why he's discontent. Even more than his physical condition, sin is what makes him unhappy. Sin is what makes him feel lost. Sin is that thing telling him, you got to get more. Sin is the force over his heart that prevents him from seeing that what he really needs is God to be king over his life. And Jesus says, I want to break you free from all of that. This is the power of forgiveness. When Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, he's not just saying, hey, you're off the hook for all the bad stuff you've done. He's saying, when I forgive you, the power of sin over your life is going to be broken. I'm going to forgive sin at the deepest possible level to take away these broken desires, your self-centeredness, your distorted longings. I want to root it all out and make you clean. I'm going to change your heart and reclaim your desires so that you can want what's good, so that you can live for something bigger. One of my favorite movie quotes is from one of my favorite movies, uh, Inception. I talked about this in CBC at the Movies a few years ago, but Inception takes place in this, this dream world, and characters are able to consciously interact with and even control their dreams. And there's one scene that always just kind of makes me laugh. Is there's this character named Arthur, and he's one of the good guys, and he's trying to 
hold off some bad guys who are trying to attack them. And so he's got this pretty solid-looking semi-automatic weapon, but he's struggling to keep the bad guys at bay. And so his friend Eames steps in, and he's holding a grenade launcher. And so he aims it, shoots the bad guys, and takes care of them easily. And he looks at Arthur, and he says with, with all the sass he can muster, we mustn't be afraid to dream a little bigger, darling. He says it with a British accent, so it sounds a lot cooler. But he's saying, in this dream world, why settle for less than a grenade launcher? Why settle for less than the very best? And this is the invitation of the Gospels of Kingdom Life. Dream bigger. Ask for more. Pursue what you really need, what will really fix your problems. And this is what Jesus is inviting us to with radical forgiveness. To come and be freed from the power of sin. To be given a new heart that doesn't settle for these lesser desires, for these small dreams, but instead believes that what would really make us happy, what would really satisfy us, what would really make our lives good, is Jesus. Only Jesus. Jesus as King. And so the idea of repentance, when Jesus says, repent and believe the good news, there's a lot to that, but in a way it's simply saying, I want to live for a bigger dream for my life. I want to turn to and live for and pursue Jesus' dream for me. Well, our passage ends with an interesting confrontation. Uh, the religious leaders, they realize that Jesus is making a claim that's pretty out there. The idea of forgiving sins, not anyone can do that. So that's something that's reserved only for God himself. And so they begin to think to themselves, who does this guy think he is? How can he claim to forgive sin? This is blasphemy. But Jesus knows what they're thinking. And I think in a sense he knows that this is kind of a reasonable thing to doubt. That he, this man who's just stepped onto the scene, that he actually could have this kind of power and authority to forgive sin, to wipe the slate clean, to give this man a new heart and new desires. And so he responds. In verse 8 he says, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. Jesus says, I'm not just talking the talk. I'm not just saying I can forgive sins. I'm the guy who actually can. I'm that guy who has the power and authority over sin. I'm that king. I'm that savior. And to prove it, I'm going to show you what it looks like when the power of sin is broken over someone's life. So young man, get up. Take your mat and walk home. Jesus is that guy. Jesus is that good. 
And we should never forget that he has the power to give us what we want. He can meet those immediate physical needs. He can give us the job, the relationship, the house, the retirement, that thing we really want. And you know what? Sometimes he will. But real healing comes. Real satisfaction comes. Not when he gives us those things, but when we realize that only Jesus, only in him, only with him as king, can we have those deep longings of the heart satisfied. And so he invites us, simply repent. Dream bigger dreams. Come to me for the healing that you need. Let's pray.